Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. Years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend, and I don't think I'll ever forget this conversation. This friend was at that point, and he still is, a theology student. And he told me point blank that he doesn't see any evidence for the existence of Satan in the Bible. And I remember at the time I was fairly shocked, and I didn't quite know how to respond. I didn't really see it coming. I tried to correct him, but it really went nowhere. And I remember what I was thinking. Satan is mentioned all throughout the New Testament. There are even really clear examples in the Old Testament. But now, some years later, I think I understand a little bit better what was going on. For my friend, these references to spiritual evil are metaphors. For him, Satan is a metaphor. Demon possession is an ancient misunderstanding of mental illness. And fundamentally, my friend does not believe in the horned red guy with the goat legs carrying around a pitchfork. And actually, I get that, because I don't either. So many of our ideas about Satan come from pop culture and medieval artwork and who knows what else. I mean, the Bible never says anything about what Satan looks like. The Bible actually never even really tells us point blank where he came from. It uses metaphors. Suddenly, we open our Bibles, and there's this serpent who's telling lies in a perfect creation. And we don't know all the details as to why that is. And Revelation talks about this war and this rebellion in heaven. And again, we don't know all the details. But everything else, all those questions that people have been asking about the devil over centuries, it's been filled in by movies and books and medieval Christianity. So I sort of get where my friend was coming from. He's not wrong to think that there's no goateed, goat man, maniacal devil running around. And one thing we misunderstand is that hell is actually Satan's punishment. But in pop culture, it has become his kingdom. In movies and TV, Satan is portrayed like some sort of powerful god, some god to rival our god, when actually he's a creature of God that can only do what God allows him. So I wonder if Satan had some sort of part in coming up with that lie about how grand he is, just thinking out loud. But while I may not believe in that horned goat man, I certainly disagree with my friend on this. In this universe, there is an intelligent, personal, powerful, spiritual being who is hell-bent on destroying us. And the first and best lie that this being can tell us is that he simply does not exist. For my friend, the root of all evil is bad human choices. And this is a common way of looking at things today. It's probably what we now hear most often. Because for our culture, and for many of our loved ones, and especially government institutions, the answer to evil is knowledge. It's education. And we look at murder, abuse, suicide, drug addiction, and propose that if we knew more about these things, we would be less likely to do them. 
evil isn't really evil, it's just misguided and misinformed. And human choice does always play into the matter. But the fact is that the more ed- we are more educated today than we have ever been in human history. And we are only becoming drastically more destructive. I don't like to use too many statistics and stuff, but I'll say that in the past 20 years from what I saw, suicides in the United States have gone, on, have gone up 25 to 50% per capita by state. There was one state that has gone down in 20 years. In the last 30 years, drug deaths in the states have multiplied 18 times per capita. And we have more university degrees per capita than ever. And then there's the 20th century, when the most intelligent people of the world decided to create utopias however they saw it, and more people died of war and hardship than ever before in millions many too great to count. We don't always think of it this way, and I think it's a happy side effect of where we live. But if you're older than 19, you were born in the vilest century in human history, and also the most educated So I would suggest that we fundamentally do not understand the problem. And because we do not understand the problem, our solutions range somewhere from futile to destructive. But the problem is this. The human race has an enemy with immense spiritual power who works tirelessly to manipulate us to destruction. And we call that enemy Satan, which is a Hebrew word which simply means the enemy. Our chapter of Matthew today makes it perfectly clear that this is exactly what is going on. The teacher, Ravi Zacharias, often says that Jesus is the only one in all of history, in all of philosophy, in all of education, who looks at humanity and rightly diagnoses the problem. And then because of that, he's the only one who offers the right solution. And today, we're going to look at three examples of what it looks like to battle Satan one-on-one and win. Matthew 4, 1-4. I just quickly ran up before the service to give Nate this long list of scriptures, so he's got his work cut out for him. Then Jesus was led up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the first verse of the chapter, but you see it starts with a then. And if you see a then, you should probably pay attention to what came before it. Because Matthew didn't write his gospel with chapters and verses like we read it. He wants us to have in mind exactly what happened before the temptation began, which was his baptism. And this first verse is already really interesting. I think I say that all the time, but here we go. We see that it is God's Spirit which brings Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. This isn't a random attack. Jesus is being sent by God into battle. And what's more, the word tempted 
could just as easily have been translated as tested. This is a test for Jesus. This is about who he is. It is about his calling. And it is about how Jesus is going to respond to evil. God allows all of this. Satan is also often called the accuser, and one of the primary reasons Satan tempts or tests is to generate an accusation. It's entrapment. Your enemy will design a situation which he believes you will fall for, and if you do, he will accuse you of not being worthy of God's love. And we're going to have a little bit more to say about this later, but keep in mind that this is one of the biggest ways that Satan does business. So he wants to find something to use against Jesus here. He wants to prove that Jesus is not righteous, he's not obedient, and he's undeserving to be called the Son of God. And Jesus is weak. This is a 40-day fast. I once did a fast for four days, and I started to go a little bit crazy. 40 days, I cannot imagine. In a technical term, Jesus is starving to death. And I love how matter-of-fact the scripture is about this when it just simply says, he was hungry. No kidding. But you know, Artur said something really interesting in Sunday school this morning as well. Fasting, does it makes you physically weak, but spiritually it also strengthens you. So there's something about preparation also going on in that fasting period. Then we see the tempter came. Verse 3. I know nothing about what that's like, the tempter came. What that was like for Jesus at this point in the wilderness. But I think we have to at least get rid of that red guy with hooves. This is horrible. This is overwhelming. And this is a vicious presence. We can't imagine what it's like to be one-on-one with the enemy like this. I have friends who have been attacked in their sleep by demons they believe, and they say it's absolute terror and shadows, and that's all they remember. And so I imagine something like that, but I don't know where to start. So Satan makes his first attack. To this starving man, he says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And if you flip back to the end of chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, it says this, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What Satan is saying is, did God really say that you're the son of God? If that's true, it's really easy to prove it. This is a really brilliant and insidious attack. If you are the son of God, Jesus, why are you out here starving? Doesn't God love his own son? Forty days, you're nearly dead, just prove it's true. Just feed yourself. Satan did not come to Jesus and try to convince him that he's not the Son of God. That would be too easy. He is trying to cast just the tiniest bit of doubt. That's all he needs. It's just the if in the question. And if Jesus proves it, He is not trusting God to provide for him in the desert. He's doing it by making the smallest suggestion that God does not love Jesus, and he's just leaving them out here to be hungry.
So I think it's brilliant. One thing we need to know is that our enemy is very intelligent. But you may have caught something here going on in the background. This situation actually isn't new at all. Jesus knows about this situation. And he actually quotes in response what happened the first time. I'm going to look at Deuteronomy 8, and I'm going to read more verses around what he quoted to the devil. This is Moses speaking to Israel, nearing the end of Moses' life, trying to give them the instruction that they need to be obedient. And Moses says this, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God led you those forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is awesome. Jesus didn't just quote a scripture in response to Satan. Jesus quoted a scripture in response to Satan about people who are hungry in the wilderness and that they cannot just seek to feed themselves. They need to trust God. Jesus can make rocks into bread, but although he needs to eat or he will die like any of us, he must live by the word which comes from the mouth of the Lord. He must trust God before even hunger. And if you think about your, to the Bible stories, how did Israel do trusting God to provide, provide for them in the desert overall? What do you remember? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Thumbs down. They lacked faith in the words of God. They did not believe that God would provide food for them. Satan wants Jesus to doubt God in exactly the same way. Because it worked last time. But Jesus, this man, this new Israel, this man of courage, this son of God, he trusts. When you are in hardship and when you are sick and dying as all of us will one day be unless the Lord returns. Or when you are bankrupt or when you are betrayed. Satan will try and convince you that you have been abandoned. He will try to tell you not to trust in God because you have been let down. And if he succeeds in casting doubt on God's love for you, he will begin to destroy your faith. And he is actually very unhappy that I am telling you this right now. I can tell you I haven't had a decent night's sleep all week, so now it's personal. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You are not going to live on bread alone. But if you remember that word from the mouth of God, you will live, period. 
And I know because I've talked to people that there are people here who can't get past their past. You're holding on to some sin and the devil tells you over and over and over again ad nauseum that God does not love you because of this thing. He's casting doubt. He's leading you to mistrust. And he's totally and awfully wrong. According to this scripture from John 3.16 and 17, why did Jesus come? For the world. Can you undo Jesus' coming? Can you make it not have happened? No. He's already proved his love. And so how does the scripture say you're going to be saved from hell and from death? You believe. Do you believe? You're saved. Case closed. So round two, and we'll give the first round to Jesus. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What happens here is something like what happened to many of the prophets all throughout the Bible. Oftentimes a prophet like Ezekiel um, or even John in Revelation would have a vision of a place, but it would be more than a vision. They would actually visit the place. They would be transported somewhere in a physical sense, but more than a spiritual sense, but more than a spiritual sense. And this is what the enemy is doing to Jesus. Suddenly Jesus is on the highest point of the temple, 50 meters in the air, looking down on the courtyards. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the tallest and largest building in Jerusalem, which is the temple. And this is supposedly the place where God's presence dwells. And look at the language that Satan is using this time again. It's very similar. If you are the Son of God. All right, Satan is thinking, so you need to live by the word of God. So, Jesus, God's word says that if you trust him, his angels will protect you. It says it right there, Psalm 91. So prove it. Jump and see if they do. And if you don't, don't you believe God's word? Don't underestimate the power of what's going on here. Jesus has been moved to a new place, and he's put directly to the test. This is violating, and it is dramatic, and it is terrifying. Because Satan has changed tactics. The last attempt, Jesus said you must trust God's word. So Satan tries to use God's word against Jesus. He quotes directly from Psalm 91, which is a psalm about trusting God. Again, this is horrible, and it is brilliant. And again, Jesus sees through it. The Father is not the Son's servant. That's not how Jesus lived. Jesus obeyed the Father. He is not going to make demands of the Father and perform magic tricks. He is going to do what his Father requires of him in love, even if that means dying. So in response, Jesus again quotes Moses in Deuteronomy. Do not test God. Serve God. 
Do not demand proofs from God. Believe his word and trust him. Because if Jesus, starving and alone, needed proof that God would save him, would he have been a strong enough kind of man to face the cross? Would he have been able to face scourging and the cross and death with faith that somehow even that would turn out for the good? Don't test God. Trust him. And Jesus trusted the Father with every lash and with every gas. You have to know God's word. You have to. It's non-negotiable. Christians study the word of God. And if we don't, God's word will be easily twisted and it will be used against us. The enemy will misconstrue something and use it to attack your faith. The enemy will introduce some slight, delicate, little bit off false teaching so that it wears you down and it erodes your trust. If Jesus didn't know the Bible, he would have jumped. And he would have been as unfaithful as Israel complaining in the desert. And if you don't know your Bible, you'll jump. Every new wind, every new teaching will blow you off course, and you and your loved ones are going to suffer because of it. That's just the truth. And if you feel like you don't have the time to get to know your Bible and to guard from this sort of thing, you need to make the time. I spent most of my 20s studying Scripture so that I could teach other people about Scripture. And this doesn't make me better than anyone else, and I'm not saying this to lift myself up. Because, in fact, God allowed me to do that so that I could serve you. And God is clear that I'm held accountable for what I teach. And if I teach wrong, I face consequences. The reason for all of this, the reason I come up here and do this, is because the church needs teachers. Because we're meant to learn the scripture together. You're meant to benefit from the work I put in as I serve you. And I am required to help instruct you so that Satan cannot trick you. That is what I try to do, and that's the account to which Jesus holds me. And sometimes even teachers can be tricked. One of my best friends, he's in his 60s, and he's been a church leader all of his adult life. And somewhere along the way, he adopted a false teaching that says that Satan is actually bound right now. He's powerless. He's not active in the world. He tempts no one and does nothing. And so through decades of ministry and church leadership, every decision he made, he was assuming that Satan had nothing to do with it. And just two years ago, it destroyed his church. Now he's more than 60 years into his life. He's humbling himself before God. And now he's learning to lead people into truth. And it didn't have to take him that long. These things have big consequences. For people who don't feel like they need church in order to grow their faith, that small lie will lead to bigger ones because we need each other. We need to correct each other. And we need to make sure that no half-truths get a foothold here in Hague Mennonite Church. Because I personally do not one day to have to have a conversation with Jesus about having let the devil spread lies in this church. Because right here we're reading a chapter which shows us how to do things right. Amen? Amen. 
Now, what's really funny is Satan didn't finish his quotation from Psalm 91, and you're going to find out why. Psalm 91. For he, verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And he stops there, and he misses. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. You remember anything about a serpent being trampled? And when Cain is being tempted so early on in our Bible, sin is described as a lion. That scripture Satan quoted is also a prophecy about Jesus destroying him, but he just forgot that part. So, two rounds for Jesus, round three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. We all know that there's no hill, there's no mountain on the world that looks down on all of the kingdoms. So this vision that Satan is leading Jesus into is really intensifying. The terror is intensifying. Jesus is very vulnerable And he is being shown things which will boggle the mind. Every empire of the world. And this time, there is no if you are the son of God. He's tried that twice. Now Satan is going to tell it exactly like it is, but he's going to hit on the most vulnerable part of Jesus himself, which is his mission. Satan says, worship me, Jesus, and I will give you the world. You'll be king. You'll lead the nations gloriously. The whole world will have a Messiah. Just give up on God, and you can have it today. The easy path. It's kingship. It's power. It's the iron rod. Nobody will choose Jesus, but everyone will have him. Why would Jesus turn this down and rather choose humiliation, rejection, and execution? How is Jesus king? What is his kingdom like? Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Quoting Moses again, Deuteronomy. But be gone, Satan. Have you heard language like this before in Bible study? Be gone, Satan. Maybe get behind me, Satan. It's familiar. Because later in the Gospel, chapter 16... Peter finally says that Jesus is the Messiah. It's been building up to that. You're 16 chapters in, and finally one of the disciples clues in. Hey, this guy's the Messiah. So this should be really good, right? We should celebrate. People are are starting to understand who Jesus is. He's the promised one. And so Jesus starts to teach them about what it means that he is the Messiah. So look what happens, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's telling the disciples exactly what's going to happen to him on the cross. And the disciples hearing this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Get behind me, Satan. Is Satan there? It's just Peter. But do you see that it's the same temptation? Satan was trying to tell Jesus that he can have it all without suffering and without dying. He can just take the power. And Peter tries to tell Jesus that he can do exactly the same thing. The Messiah should never die. The Messiah needs to be king. So you see, this third temptation, it does not end when Jesus rebukes Satan. It haunts him all the way to the cross. He weeps about it in Gethsemane. Jesus rejects the obvious part of this test. He's not going to worship Satan, but God alone. But behind this is a much more painful test. Will Jesus choose obedience and suffering, or will he do what everyone wants him to do and is demanding that he should do and overthrow the Romans and create paradise on earth? And I believe that Satan was not lying about offering Jesus the world. I believe it is his to offer. Because we are not against flesh and blood, we are against principalities and powers. The things which drive this world are against God. Nazism was going to create a perfect paradise, and its methods were death and evil. Communism was going to create a perfect paradise, and its methods were death and evil. But it can be more subtle than that. Our enemy wants us to make compromises for power. He wants us to do things which seem good but are disobedient. That's the temptation here. Jesus wants to set the nations free and bring them to the light of God, but he was going to do it by obeying God in no other way. We are constantly being tempted by things seemingly good which require disobedience. Does your work require you to lie? Now and again, in different jobs I've had, I've been asked to lie. For reasons which, according to my work, seem perfectly fine. It was just a means to an end. Should you have sex before marriage if you plan to marry the person anyway? It's not a big deal, right? It leads to a good. Except it's disobedient. And should we support philosophies and leaders and political parties which dehumanize or demonize anyone if it might mean more Christian influence in a country. It seems like a fair deal. And this one gets very messy, and if I keep going, I'm going to make everyone here mad at me. (laughs) But what I'm trying to tell you is that nothing is worth the compromise. Nothing. Nothing is so good that it's worth disobeying God. There's nothing in this earth that Satan can offer you which is better than what God has already guaranteed you. And here comes the knockout punch, round three. Doesn't go the full length. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan gave up this time, but he was going to keep trying. And God keeps his promise in the end. Don't miss this. He keeps his promise, and he sends angels to his starving son, and Jesus never asked for them. What a powerful scripture! Here's the thing. None of the disciples were there for any of this. The only way Matthew got any of these details is because Jesus told them exactly what happened. And Jesus told them because Jesus thinks that this is something we need to know. 
Because what Satan tried to do to him, Satan will try to do to us. Satan is not omniscient and not omnipotent. And those are $10 theological words which mean all-knowing and all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. But Satan is much more intelligent than we are. He does not know everything. He knows what we do and what we say, and he will watch us, and he will exploit it. But only God knows the heart, and God is infinitely greater. And Satan is not all-powerful. He did some very powerful things in these passages, but he can only do what God allows him. There is nothing the enemy can do to prevent the judgment and destruction that is coming for him. And scripture teaches that that's exactly why he's trying so hard to harm us. It's revenge. And here's where it gets even a little bit more personal. I think most of us, maybe all of us know exactly what Satan's voice sounds like. Because we have all heard that negative internal voice condemning us. It's that voice which makes you feel like an idiot. It's that voice which brings up the past and pummels you with it. It's that voice which only exists to make you feel totally unworthy. When you hear it and Satan is trying to drag you down and torture you, do you know what to do? Do you realize he is trying to break your trust in God? Do you see that he wants you to lash out at God for not caring for you when you were suffering? Do you see that he wants to confuse your understanding of God's word and lead you further away from Jesus? And do you see that he wants you to choose the world over obeying God? And that's why we have this chapter. We get the problem, we get the solution, and it's simple. Trust God, know the truth, and rebuke Satan. Trust God in hardship and never doubt his love. Anything which tells you otherwise is a lie. Study scripture together and learn to protect yourself from falsehood. And when you hear that awful voice trying to tear you down, tell Satan to get the hell out of here and say it out loud. And if you are listening closely, and if you are learning from Jesus' example, Satan is going to be very frustrated that you came to church this morning. And Paul said it perfectly, and I'll close with his words. What should we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will then condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, We are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. 
Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that there is nothing, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haguemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.